0: I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network, presented by Interact. The healthcare system has been temporarily redesigned to meet the COVID-19 challenge. Horror stories out of Italy were an inspiration for every province and territory of Canada, but the redesigning has continued in real time. As we learn about the particular track of the disease in each jurisdiction, ministries, public health officials, and administrators take steps to increase the effectiveness of the response including taking into account PPE shortages and physical distancing. As we optimistically watch the slow trend downwards of new COVID cases, but also cautiously consider preparations for a second wave, I'm joined by Dr. Sasha Badia to discuss the redesign process and to maybe even dream a little bit about what a high performing redesign system could look like in the long term, in and beyond COVID's shadow. Dr. Badia is the Chief Medical Innovation Officer Women's College Hospital, FM Hill Chair, Health Systems Solution, Chief of Cardiology, and an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto Department of Medicine. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Baccia.
1: Oh, thanks a lot for having me, Jody. This is a lot of fun. You can just call me Sasha.
0: Thank you. All right, Sasha, the purpose of the system redesign was to support physical distancing and to create capacity to meet a COVID-caused surge in demand for hospital services, particularly ventilator Supported beds. So, what did this entail? How did this system change?
1: Wow. Well, you know, I think, uh, you you know, in your intro, you're absolutely right. I think many of us saw what was happening uh, first uh, in China, then in Italy, and then in New York. uh, And the fear in all of this was that, you know, if uh, the number of cases, uh, uh, the surge, so to speak, Um, came at the rate that was happening in those other places, it would overwhelm Ontario's hospital system, particularly our ventilator system. And then we would have to make some really difficult decisions about being able to support people. So as a consequence, the first thing that we did uh, as a system uh, in a relatively coordinated way was figure out how to increase capacity. And the first thing that requires is to ramp down all um elective and i don't like to use the term elective but more non-urgent um cases surgical cases in particular because they're the ones that actually use up icu capacity ventilator capacity and then um and so that was the first thing so that we could increase capacity we tried to move as many people out of hospital as we possibly could reducing so-called elective readmissions for procedures again to free up bed space we then uh also started to uh, also do our own physical distancing, meaning not allowing or or rescheduling routine ambulatory cases, routine ambulatory follow-ups with patients. Doctors closed many of their offices and then started to provide virtual care, which I'm hoping we'll get to talk about. So providing care at a distance to manage our patients with chronic diseases a little bit better while at the same time keeping physical distancing. And then along the way, A coordination of trying to increase the number of ICU beds that might have been available, like creating temporary spaces for ICU beds. So there were a lot of plans to be able to augment the system with ICU beds. Turns out that we didn't actually need all of that, but it was a massive coordinated effort uh, that happened in a really short period of time.
0: And better to be prepared and have additional capacity than not have additional capacity. I mean, you can see what's happened in Italy. You can see what's happened in New York pretty clearly uh, with, uh, you know, unfortunately, and very tragic, uh, increased mortality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've done really well in Canada, I think, and a big part of that due to both the physical distancing that was that, that the public did, and I think they followed those the, the guidelines of, of Dr. Tam and the rest of the Public Office of Health very well, but at the same time, as well, a system that I think, an acute care system that I think was very well prepared uh, for the oncoming surge.
0: So let's talk about uh, virtual care. You know, what seemed like, an, just frankly, an impossibility. I, I was literally in a room, I think it was in February, uh, with uh, Dr. Sandy Bachman talking about, you know, the CMA's position on virtual care. And I was like, you know, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But that's, that's going to be tough. That's going to be tough to make happen. <laughs> and then, bam, it happened.
1: Yeah, you know, it's we laugh about this because, you know, for the longest time, as you know, I've been a big proponent of virtual care and women's college hospital where I practice is aiming to be one of the first truly virtual hospitals in Canada. Um, but I always thought that, you know, progress would be slow. Um doctors are reticent to change patients are reticent to change there were problems with the billing structure there were concerns about privacy and a number of things and it felt like you know this was this was a pipe dream and then covid hit and and not that you can you know you know you look at the, the silver lining in every cloud you could say covid fundamentally changed the game particularly for how we deliver services because we suddenly went from 10% or 15% of virtual visits, for example, uh, at our hospital, to now 70 to 90% of care, of care being provided virtually, either through video visits, phone, email, those sorts of things. And as a consequence, you know, I think it's really supported the physical distancing piece. But I actually think, as I do it, patients really like it. Um, they like being able to, uh, you know, communicate with their physician in the comfort of their own home. They can do it without having to figure out childcare, pay for parking, all that kind of stuff. And actually um they really do uh find it very convenient. And so I think at the end of this, I I think it's going to be hard for people to go back.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with that. Um I'm not such a frequent tweeter, but probably my most popular tweet was I, you know, and I just kind of, you know, rattled it off that, you know, I'd hoped my healthcare would stay virtual, but that class that schooling would go back to in person (laughs) as soon as possible. I say that as a parent. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, but yeah, like, and and it was very popular though. Like, and not just because you know um, parents um, you know hope that their kids get back into classrooms, but people do appreciate virtual care. So, so it seems like there there's a lot of things you know working for patients uh, for, uh, in terms of virtual care. Um, is there everything in place uh, there needs to be for it to work for the clinician?
1: So that that you know, I think one of the biggest things that I think a number of governments did uh, in Canada and the U.S. that I actually think was 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 smart was the billing piece. So prior to um, you know this COVID pandemic, the way to access virtual care, um, from a billing perspective was very limited in, in Ontario in particular. And I think across the rest of the country and they liberalized the billing codes and actually, um, went pretty far by basically making equivalent virtual, uh, virtual care and in-person care, uh, thus creating a massive incentive for people to sort of adopt virtual care. Now, a big question is how long do those codes sort of stay, uh, where they are, um, and I think if those codes are removed, for example, um, that could probably have a pretty significant effect on whether people go back to go back to business as usual. Um, The other thing is uh, that I I do think is we we integrated this really quickly, like we we adopted this in, you know, in weeks. And um, I think we probably do need to go back and really begin to understand, you know, the care practices and pathways, because I don't necessarily think in business as usual times that every patient, uh, you know, should get a virtual visit. But I I do think that um, some patients probably need a video visit, some patients need a phone call, some patients just need to be responded to by email. So we haven't actually done the matching of the right patient to the right piece of technology for the right provider. So there's a bit of work uh, on that end that needs to be done. And then the other thing that I think we need to figure out is around the whole privacy security piece. So obviously, when you're moving quick, um, you know, the Government basically said, you know, use whichever technology you want. Use the telephone, use Skype, use FaceTime, um, which I think is very appropriate, you know, when we're dealing with a pandemic. On the other hand, you know, we now need to figure out what's the right balance between the convenience and then what's the right technology you've already heard people getting zoom bombed i'm sure so how do we protect patient privacy and data you know through this process and i think you know those are the kind of big questions for me that need to be set up to keep the sustainable but i think it's going to be much easier now that we're kind of you know on the other end of the curve than than kind of having to come up the curve
0: Yeah, I think uh, I'm, so thank you for raising the privacy piece. And, you know, I think um, as well, we need to think about what is the appropriate data to be retained in connection with virtual visits. Um, We're not, uh, with the telephone, we're we're, we're not going to record the telephone conversation. We'll probably record that the telephone conversation happened and what the substance of that consultation was. With virtual care, it's a little bit different, right? No matter what There might be some metadata retained. Do we care about that? Do we want to keep it? Uh, Is there a research purpose, even if there isn't a clinical care purpose? Those are important questions.
1: Oh, they're hugely important questions. You know, my wife, uh, you know, we, I bought an Alexa one day and put it in the house, and my wife is a lawyer. And the moment that she saw it, she unplugged it immediately because she said, you have no idea if that thing is listening to us all the time or not. And I, I, I always think about that because, you know, it. as we get into these sorts of sophisticated technologies we're using in intimate environments, like, you know, talking to your doctor, you know. Having patients have the confidence that um, their data is going to be secure and is going to be protected and truly private. And data can mean a number of different things. It's not just the stuff I write down in my notes, but, you know, certainly could be things from wearable devices, could be conversations, as you said, recorded, uh, you know, a number of different things. We patients have to feel confident that that information is going to be secure and no one's going to be able to use it inappropriately. So I, I think there is a bit of work that needs to be done in this area. And, um, you know, I, I certainly think uh, a lot of privacy experts are going to be thinking about this, particularly as we move into the next phase of the pandemic.
0: So speaking of that next phase, um, you know, we're, we're starting to think about this. Uh, there's, uh, particularly in Ontario, there's no kind of go live date, uh, but the ministry has signaled that um, healthcare organizations um, should start planning. And of course you and Will Falk had already put some really good thinking against this um, in anticipation of this moment coming. And one of the things you talked about were dedicated uh, COVID hospitals, and I saw the Ontario Minister of Health, Minister Elliot, talking about COVID-free hospitals. So, kind of the other side of the coin <laughs> of thinking about it. You know, I- explain why 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 that is uh, an important element uh, potentially to a successful uh, reopening of the healthcare system beyond just emergent care.
1: Well, I, I think you know, and it's it's great that you mentioned that because the Ministry of Health just today put out their report uh, from you know well really Ontario Health put out its recommendations around how we could start up elective surgery. I happen to sit on that committee, and so we there are a lot of intense discussions about you know the conditions that would be required to, to you know open up again for elective and 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 urgent uh, you know more urgent surgeries, and you know a, a big issue uh, is. Um, first off, supply of ICU beds, supply of PPE or, or you know, protective equipment. Um, and uh, as well as, you know, people don't even think about it, but things like anesthesia drugs, like sedative drugs, you know, um, which can become in short supply. So do you have the personnel, do you have the equipment and do you have the capacity to be able to do certain things? And so part of the challenge is, uh, you know, when you're thinking about um Going into the next phase, is you know we're not going to be rid of COVID entirely. I mean our numbers are down in Ontario, but we're still trucking along at like you know 300 cases a day, and still about a thousand people in hospital. And our our thinking, which has you know been done in other countries like China and Italy, is to say, how do you balance? And this will be the big challenge. Doing cases that uh, and making sure that you can efficiently um, deal with you know, the routine bread and butter things that our healthcare system has to deal with every day, including cardiac surgery, cancer surgery, and all these sorts of things, while at the same time managing that consistent low-grade, you know, and potential surges of COVID. And so the thought was, if you're able to split, or at least able to take what I would consider a regional approach, where you have areas, units, doesn't have to be whole hospitals, but you keep... COVID patients. In in one contained area, you can allow your other areas to continue on with surgeries, to continue on treating like routine uh, sort of bread and butter things while conserving your PPE, making sure that your the, the people working in the COVID area are well protected, making sure they have enough of the equipment that they need. And then also reducing the risk of hospital related outbreaks, which, you know, we seen, for example, at Toronto Western Hospital. So I think that was the idea, because it is very hard for hospitals individually to do both. Basically, you'll just be chasing your tail.
0: Yeah, and there's been a real cost to, you know, delaying these the surgeries. Um, you know, on April 28th, Minister Elliott confirmed, you know, 35 people may have passed away because their surgeries weren't performed. So, you know, just maintaining a status quo as it exists today is, is not really an option.
1: No, and, and you know, it's it's worse than that, because compared to last year, Ontario has done 92% fewer elective, and by elective, I don't just mean, you know, uh, like, like a cataract operation, a nice-to-have thing, or a knee replacement, but truly, like, um, you know, this could be cancer and cardiac surgeries. They've done ninety-two percent fewer surgeries than they did a year before. So, if you think about, you know, the fact that wait times have already been an issue in Canada, the fact that we're now starting from such a deficit means, if we really want to catch up we actually can't just go back to normal. We actually probably need to go to a higher level of uh, efficiency and of productivity in order to catch up on those cases. Otherwise, we may never be able to get through the wait list and they'll continue to backlog. And so the idea is you might need to, you know, and and this was the idea of having some non-COVID and COVID or COVID protected places available is they can then be focused. On being extremely efficient in terms of um, churning out surgeries uh, and being able to get through some of the wait lists, because my worry is if you have patients w- waiting for uh, you know cardiac surgery, we just might not get to them, and they could have a bad result as a consequence.
0: Now things like surgeries, I mean, you you can't look at delivering those services in the home. There's just some procedures um, and some uh, types of care that have to happen in hospitals, but I'm just curious, um, and not, not inviting you to, to breach any confidentiality, but, you know, in, in deliberations, um, was it discussed? Are there some things that just need to be moved out of hospital, moved out of, um, what is now a higher risk setting?
1: I, I think so. So, um. Uh, you know one of the things that will and and I have talked about is this notion of what I would call the costs of contact um, uh, you know will calls it the cost of physical contact I think it rolls off the tongue to just say cost of contact and so what the idea is is there's always been costs that patients have borne from having to be face to face with somebody you know whether it be um, you know the cost of taking your you know you know finding child care taking time off work driving downtown all that kind of stuff Uh, You know, paying for parking, Um, but now COVID adds another layer because there's risk. You know, the costs of contact are higher because you could actually infect yourself, you can infect other patients, and or you could infect the providers and vice versa. And so, what we sort of thought about is this sort of like asking two questions. Um, One, uh, you know, kind of taking a choosing wisely bent is. Does this procedure or this this encounter even need to be done, whether it's surgery, whether it's a test, whether it's you know a visit with a provider? you know there's a lot of routine stuff, Jody, as you know, that happens in the healthcare system, and I think we probably have to take a bit stronger look at. Do we need to do that in the first place? And patients, quite frankly, are making that decision already. Uh, I have patients who can't have canceled procedures or canceled like tests because they're like, you know what, honestly, I just don't feel like coming in. And then the second thing is can this be done virtually? And so again, you know, the the example I might use is uh, a person who needs to get their gallbladder taken out. So, you know, if you think about somebody getting their gallbladder taken out, usually there's like, say four points of contact. There's like the initial visit to the surgeon, a visit to the anesthesiologist, the surgeon themselves, and then potentially um, the post-operative visit. If it's a day procedure, they go home. Well, those are four points where somebody could potentially be in physical contact with others to get infected. But nowadays, you know, the surgeon visit could be virtual. If you have the radiology available, the, the visit can be virtual. You don't need in a low risk procedure The choosing YZ guidelines would say you actually don't need to have a preoperative anesthesia consult or any of the testing that ensues because it's actually low risk and not necessary. You clearly need to actually go to hospital to get your surgery because you're not going to get your gallbladder taken out at home. But your post-operative visit could also be virtual, where if you took a picture of the surgical scar with your with your phone and sent it to your doctor, um, they could look and see if it's infected, ask you some questions. So suddenly you've taken four points of contact and you've turned it into one physical point of contact, which is really what we're talking about when we think about redesigning the entire system. So. In short, I think it's absolutely possible that we can start moving things, both getting rid of unnecessary things, but also moving things that otherwise you'd have to be in hospital for uh, out into the community.
0: Yeah, Doris Grinspun had a great blog. I don't know if you saw it, but she was talking about um, the way uh, the Balearic Islands, um, uh, province of Spain, uh, you know, designed how their system would, would try and meet the COVID challenge, and you know, they really focused on the primary care system and they uh, divided work into two work circuits. So a little bit at like like what you're talking about in terms of hospitals, the COVID activity versus the non-COVID activity. And then they leveraged telephone, good old-fashioned telephone still works, uh, yep, despite does. the rumors. Yep. <laughs> and uh, community health centers um, were really engaged as well uh, in connection with vulnerable patients. So you know, to ensure, you know, doing check-ins just to make, to be a bit more proactive and identifying um, uh, risk solutions. So, you know, I, I think to me, I think I would have loved to see home care better leveraged um, in, uh, in the very least in the Ontario situation, which is the one I know best, you know, volumes were scaled back. Um, to create capacity, but then it was never really leveraged or deployed. Uh, what, what What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that's it's a it's actually a shame. You know, I think um, it's uh, it is unfortunate, and, and in particular, it's unfortunate when you think about the tragedy that's happening in long term care homes. You know, where. Um, you have a lot of you know long-term care homes where obviously, as we all know that's where the majority of the um you know the 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 really bad outcomes are happening and two I think three quarters of all the deaths are in long-term care homes. and you know a lot of it a lot of the challenges relate to staffing. well, there would be an opportunity where you know again, you've got a very Uh, you know, well-skilled, you know, resource in the home care sector that, again, could be redeployed. And then at the same time, you know, you think about all of these other environments where you have, you know, folks who are suffering from COVID, say, for example, or other folks who have chronic diseases who can't get into medical care. How can we redeploy home care, possibly enabled by technology, to then be able to provide care to folks in their place of residence so that they then don't have to either go into hospital or they can also self-isolate in a way that will allow them to, like, recover? Because that's one of the biggest challenges I think that we're going to have is, you know, as you know, one of the big problems with the COVID pandemic right now is the fact that a lot of folks who are, Um, who are COVID positive or who are getting the virus cannot self-isolate for whatever reason. And that comes to housing, but also when they are, uh, you know, uh, COVID positive, how do we make sure that they don't deteriorate? Who's providing them care? I think, you know, home care resources can be really powerful uh, tools in that regard. And I I do think they're underutilized.
0: Are you worried about um, what the return to service might look like? I was uh, noticing that, uh, in Montreal, which is, you know, I appreciate in, in a pretty unique situation in this country in terms of uh, what's happening with COVID. But, you know, they had a quiet period uh, in their emergency departments. Uh, but on May 4th, they were over 100% occupancy. Are, are you scared there's going to be a, a bit of a flood or a rush once people start feeling like hospitals are safe uh, places to go back to?
1: Yes. Um, although I do think more of a broad societal uh, point that I actually think people are smart. And I think that, you know, they've been very cautious and it's been this whole more broad, like, are we opening things up or, you know, shutting things down? And, you know, this whole, uh, you know, economic argument. And I think people are answering that question by saying, they're going to do their own risk analysis to say, you know, it's safe for me to go or it's not safe for me to go. And they, you know, I find patients, you know, even in the healthcare system, are sort of making some of those judgments themselves. Um, so, but what I am a little bit worried about is if every hospital, if if hospitals don't take a regional approach or like a local approach that considers. Um, Concerns that are outside of the hospital, then we could run into trouble. And what I mean by that is, you know, look, hospitals have are running, you know, have basically shut down everything that they have and they have pressures in order to drive uh, back up to, you know, deal with the waiting list. They've got surgeons that haven't worked in months. And there is a there's, I'm sure, an appetite to start opening up like business as usual. But and and it may very well be that hospitals have no cases within the walls of their hospital. And they might say, you know what, this sounds great, back to business as usual. But if they don't consider what's happening in their long-term care community, uh, what the degree or the burden of COVID is and the rate of increase in cases is in their community, if what other hospitals within their community are doing, you know, then you could get into a situation where your, your response is no longer coordinated. I think we've been most Successful when our responses have been coordinated between the region, hospitals, and then all of the other sectors. But I think our, I think the tension is that individual hospitals would sort of like go it alone, and I think if they do that, I think I worry that we could run into trouble.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, even in the in the United States, you know, to to the south of us, it's been interesting to see how states. Uh, have been partnering uh, in terms of their approaches, uh, appreciating that there's a lot of travel, you know, between, uh, between state boundaries and, and understanding that, that, that they can't be islands. I guess you're sort of saying this is just a slightly more micro level that the that, that hospitals have to be cognizant that their actions are taking place in, in a system
1: well exactly like you know we we've seen that in fact you know our while our acute care sector has actually weathered the storm our long term care sector has had real challenges and i think hospitals have met that challenges by being resource partners and by supporting them but i do worry that if we go back to a business as usual sort of approach and some hospitals say you know what we've got to focus on the work that we're doing what could then happen is is then you know some of these other partners uh, sort of could be left in the wind, and it could be it could lead to negative consequences across the community.
0: I, I, I think that that's a that's a very sensitive uh, and important point for all of us uh, to bear in mind as we as we see what's happening um, in our communities. Um, I want to talk to you about your TEDx Western U talk, uh, about how big data changed pro sports and you know and can re- revolutionize our, our healthcare too. You know, perhaps you could talk to us um, a little bit um, about uh, what you talked about in that talk and and just let us know if your thinking has changed or uh, kind of accelerated uh, in this COVID moment.
1: Well, you know, the funny thing again, COVID's been great because. Um, you know, I, I, as you know, I'm like a bit of a data nerd and um, it's hard to talk about data, you know, with, you know, people who are not uh, also so interested or inclined, but, you know, all this talk about testing and numbers has gotten like, you know, regular folk, you know, interested in data and wanting more and more and more data and how much more testing do we need? So there's actually been a huge interest, I think, in, you know, gaining, Using data to be able to get us out of this pandemic, and the same thing, uh, I think, is the case for health system performance. You know, the, the so my TEDx talk was really talking about how, you know, when you think about, um, you know, professional sports, um, they use data you know, almost constantly to make micro improvements in both the way that players perform, but also in the ways that teams perform. So, and how do they use the strengths and weaknesses of individual players on their team to then be able to really, you know, uh, uh, be a high performing unit. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we just don't do very well in healthcare is actually like use data to identify that, you know, every every individual piece of our system uh, is differing in terms of its performance. And they all have strengths and weaknesses. And we can use then data to be able to optimize how those pieces function together. And, you know, the the best thing, you know, there there's a few examples of this, but, you know, um, we can certainly see that, you know, surgical teams, there are going, are you know, there's going to be not just the surgeon actually doing the technical thing, but in fact, the anesthesiologist who is like, has to be expert in keeping the patient stay, safe and stable, the ICU, the nursing in the post-operative area, you know, even the preoperative clinic and the medical people who are sort of assessing somebody prior to surgery for their stability. Each of those pieces functions independently, at, but at, at together as well in order to ensure an optimal result. And I think, you know, data can help us be able to understand the nuances and differences in performance that if we were able to work really well together, we could ultimately be able to improve, you know, our system. And I think COVID to be frank has actually accelerated that thinking because, you know, in Canada, you know, What we've what it's done is sort of said, well, we all have to work together. Um, You know, we know, for example, that there is capacity within our hospital system, um, but our long term care system is really struggling. And data will tell us that the the mortality rate in our long-term care homes is one of the worst uh, across 14 countries. So now what's happening is hospitals are actually working with long-term care to buttress them, to be able to provide support. And at a micro level, if we had data around infections around infection rates this is the whole you know notion of contact tracing if we actually know where the infections are we know what what's going on we know how well certain places are performing we can then either add more resources or potentially shift resources in areas that are high performing to areas that are low performing in order to really make improvements so you know it's it's actually, this has been a great time for data. And there was a really great op-ed by Irfan Dalla, who, you know, today in the Globe and Mail, who actually mentioned this notion of let's let's not try to adapt to COVID, let's eliminate it. And a big thread through the whole thing is let's use data as our weapon against COVID to really, like, begin to find people who are positive, to be able to then, you know, isolate you know, contact trace and 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 really have all of the pieces of our system working well together, like in one unified purpose.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated Erfan's piece too because I think um, it's uh, I think a decision is being made. I think a different one is being made uh, across different jurisdictions, but I don't think yes. people appreciated that a decision was being made and or what the choices were uh, behind that that decision. So I thought I thought it was really smart and 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 you lead me to to uh my my last uh, parting question for you which is you know we have people's attention um uh on the healthcare system in a way that we really don't ordinarily have it. So for example you know, the early part of the COVID-19 discussion in Canada was really bringing home to folks what high occupancy rates meant in terms of our ability to respond to the pandemic. And then people got that and they understood why changes were were being made. Um, Of course, now, you know, tragedy in in our long-term care system, uh, really just horrific outcomes and, um, you know, calls to, to really take a look at that system to help it um, improve. So, um, and we just had a chat about, you know, healthcare a, a little bit forgotten, you know, through, through this process. So, so, so we have folks' attention. And as you point out, they're looking at data. They're, they're, you know, looking at Globe and Mail tracking. They're looking at New York Times tracking. They're looking at Financial Times tracking and, you know, uh, thinking about what, what it all means to them personally, what should we as, as, you know, health system, uh, proponents, um, and, and, you know, uh, continuous improvement, uh, addicts, what, 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 what do we want to tell people? Like, what, what, what do we need their support with to yeah. come out of this with a better system?
1: Oh, it's a <laughs> it's a great question. Um, so I think I think it has been amazing to have so many people engaged in um, you know, the the so-called uh, boring parts of of the healthcare system. Questions around capacity and data and improvement and and even looking at the vulnerable places you know in our system that never get talked about we've talked about long term care but nobody's really talked about congregate living shelters you know and then the intersection between which has been really interesting that people have started to talk about which is the intersection between sort of social and social economics and 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 also mortality in this in this crisis so that's been something that people have started to talk a little bit more about so i, I to me, I think the, the main things are sort of, um, you know, one, I think we need to have a discussion with patients and citizens about what they want their healthcare system to look like coming out of this. You know, I think that we have their attention, so we need to ask them their opinion. You know, um, we can actually use this opportunity um, to really be able to like, like what's the expression, never let a good crisis go to waste, where to, to actually begin to reimagine what our healthcare system should look like but it shouldn't come from us providers and health system people it should actually come from 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 citizens and you know they can you know kind of guide us i think that's a big one i think the other the other big thing is, you know, um, we should be giving them answers, we should be giving them data, we should be giving them being transparent as best as we can about how we're doing. And I think, you know, Ontario's trying. I know there have been challenges around some of the data pieces and testing. But, you know, when you just have to look south of the border to sort of see where transparency dies, you know, outcomes are bad and so i think we need to be transparent and then the third thing i think we need to do is we need to make sure that we have all the right voices at the table so you know i haven't talked a ton about the equity piece but i think you know it is very clear to me you know in the work that we do at women's and and you know the work in the system that this that this Uh, virus has really exposed some fairly uh, large structural inequities that we have. And this isn't just the social determinants of health, something that we'll fix 20 years from now. Like, this is happening today. And, you know, I I can just tell you, Jody, like, some of the work that we do at Women's is, you know, has been going and doing mobile testing in shelters and in congregate living environments, of which there are a ton in Toronto. And the reality is, is there's almost like a tale of two pandemics where you've got folks who can self-isolate. They've got a home. And actually, they many people don't feel affected by this. But then when you swab shelters or congregate living sectors and you find 50 percent of the people in there are positive from COVID, you realize the inequities that our system has sort of generated. And so I think we have to make sure that when we ask citizens what they want, we're transparent with them. We also make sure that we're asking all the right people and that we're inclu- being inclusive in that conversation, because I do think the equity piece uh, is going to be really critical um, as we redesign a system that's fair for everybody.
0: Dr. Bhatia, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me, for uh, educating us about the costs of contact and how uh, we can create a better system, uh, but only if we do it together.
1: Thanks so much for having me.